week we were in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 38. Advent Conspiracy is just an organization. It's nothing that big. It's just a, a group of evangelical believers that came together and uh, are trying to encourage people to spend less on themselves and on their families at Christmas time and instead give money away, spend that on people, spend time together as a family. And they have ideas on that website of ways you can do that. But our church has already come up with several ideas of ways you can do that. And uh, one of them is to give to Operation Christmas Child, which we've been talking about this, after, this evening. You're going to get a chance to give away the beautiful gift of music and go out and do some Christmas caroling. But the whole point is this right here, this anticipation, this looking forward to the coming of Christ, this Christmas season, this is so much more important than what we usually make Christmas out to be. And last week, if you'll remember, um, we looked at a passage of Scripture that I thought really connected well with what we're talking about when, when in regards to what Christmas is all about. And that is the early church, in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 38, they, they had this great grace upon them, and the great grace was exhibited in several ways in their church. First of all, it was exhibited in tremendous unity. They had outstanding unity in the church. Then it was exhibited in extraordinary generosity. And uh, the generosity really was the proof of the unity. Because the Bible says they were of one heart and of one mind. And if you're of one heart and of one mind or of one heart and one soul, I believe is what it said. Uh, if you're of one heart and one soul, then, then the next, next, next step to that is that my stuff is your stuff and your stuff is my stuff. And people share and they give and serve one another. But then finally, they were also had great grace upon the church in their testimony. Now Luke, as you'll remember last week, drew our attention particularly to the generosity and showed us that there was not a needy person in the church. There was no one that didn't go with their needs not being met. And that was due to the fact that people were willing to sell their houses, people were willing to sell their land, and meet the needs in the church as they arose. This generosity, as I already said, was the evidence of their unity, and it was consequently a powerful testimony to all who witnessed it. It was a powerful testimony to all who witnessed it. Then Luke gives us an example of a man who exemplified this unusual generosity. Uh, verse 36 of that passage says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And that brings us to today's passage. So today we're in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And go ahead and turn there, if you would. And if you don't have a Bible this morning, one of our men can get a Bible for you in the back there, or you can just follow along on the screen. Acts chapter 5, verses 1. I said 1 through 11. We're actually going to read 1 through 16. 1 through 16. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Starting in verse 1. But. Now let me stop right there. <laughs> that's as far as I'm going to get so far. But. Right, let me stop right there because that's a very important word. What Luke's about to do is to draw a very stark contrast between the man we just read about, Barnabas, in Acts chapter 4, verse 36, and someone else, and a, a couple in the church. So he starts off with the word but. He wants to say, hey. This all sounds wonderful, everything that's happening in the church, the unity, the generosity, but they're sinners as well, they're not perfect, and something's about to happen. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. 
And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Father, we pray right now that you speak to us through your word. God, I thank you for the easy passages in Scripture, and I thank you for the tough passages in Scripture, the ones that make us fear like this one does. So God, we pray, we ask you to speak to us, God, that you'd help us to see what what Luke wanted, to, wanted us to see when he wrote these words, which is what you want us to see. And so, God, we ask now that we would apply these words to our life in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to this passage. The story goes on. This is the first hint of any problems in the church. So we've been looking at the church, the early church. We've seen, as we've been going through Acts, this series called He Reigns. Up to this point... Everything's been great inside the church. I mean, they've, they've begun to encounter some persecution, but within the church itself, there hasn't really been any problems up until now. So this is, I guess, the very first church scandal, if you will, in, in the history of the church. It's right here in Acts chapter 5. So it's the first incident, first issue where there seems to be a problem in the church. Unfortunately, the early church, just like us, until we are fully sanctified, until we're finally fully made into the image of Christ, we're all still on that journey, and therefore sin will always continue to rear its ugly head in the church. It will always happen. But I want us to learn some things from this passage today, and I want us to look at um, this passage closely and see some things from Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, I've entitled today's, oops, let me go back. I've entitled today's passage, The Gracious Gift of Fear, and we'll get to that near the end of the message today as to why I've entitled it that. But first of all, I want us to look at what happens here with these two, with this couple. And, uh, and, and either one of two things happen. Before I get to that point that's up there, either one of two things happen with these, this couple. Either, one, God had placed it upon their heart to sell their land because they've seen some needs in the church. And God's placed it upon their heart to sell land and to give it all to the church to meet a need. Either that's happened or the Holy Spirit never put it upon their heart. God never led them to do anything but they see an opportunity to get some attention, and they decide on their own, hey, let's sell this land, we can make some money off of it, and we can, we can give some to the church, you know, get a tax write-off, right? Okay, no, they don't think they had a tax write-off back then. But either one of two things are happening, and I think because of the severity of God's reaction here, I think it was the first, honestly. I think that, that God had led them, had placed upon their hearts to, to give something to the church, and they instead contrived this deed that we read of here. And so um, what we see here in this passage, uh, and we'll look at their sins here in a second, there, there's a deadly combination of sins that we see here in Ananias and Sapphira. Kind of a, uh, if you put ingredients together, you've heard, you've heard the um, phrase, um, um, let's, let's say a deadly combination of ingredients. That's what we have here. We have a deadly combination of sinful ingredients in the life of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, to kind of illustrate uh, what this was that they did and how bad it was, I, 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 want to, um, I want to offer a gift to somebody today. I've got some Dunkin' Donuts here. Who likes Dunkin' Donuts? And this can be for the adults as well. All right? You like the... D likes Dunkin' Donuts. It's only the kids. Be honest, parents. It's actually... They're very healthy because they have zero trans fat. That's what it says right here. Zero trans fat. That means they're good for you. So... I've got Dunkin' Donuts. Who would like some Dunkin' Donuts here? All right, I've got a variety. I've got chocolate, um, the, the cake donuts, and a glaze, and a chocolate mint. Victoria, which one do you want? Chocolate. chocolate. Good, good. All right, here, I've got half-eaten chocolate one there. You want that? 
Okay, well, would you like one back here? Would you like a glaze? The glaze, is, only the glaze has actually been eaten off of that one, okay? So, you, would you like that? No? Uh, would you like the chocolate mint? That's all that's left of it there. I do have half of a cake donut if you'd like it, Jacob. Right. You don't want half of this, do you? Okay, uh, that would be awful rude of me to bring these donuts out here like I just did and to tempt you with it and to say, oh, would you like a donut? Uh, you're assuming that I'm going to give you the whole donut, but instead I give you a half-eaten donut? Or oh, this is the worst, and this actually Emma Kate did that. So <laughs> Emma Kate took the top off that one there. So I'm going to leave these here in case anybody does want them, all right? I'm going to put them right up front here. You know what would have been even worse? What would have been even worse is if, let's say, um, Deemer gave me the money to buy these. He says, Steve, I'm going to give you money to go buy a dozen donuts today. So he gives me the money to go buy the donuts. And so I go out and I buy the donuts and I eat all but like two of them. And he says, hey, all I, want, I just want two of them. And I give him back two that are all half eaten. I licked off the, the, the icing. I was like, here you go, Deemer. How about that? You see, that's how God feels here, I believe, in this passage of Scripture. God whether we like to recognize it or not, everything you have, every stitch of clothing on your body, every toy you have, every penny in your bank account has been given to you and entrusted to you by God. It does not belong to you. He's the one who, he's the one, it all belongs to him. He owns it all. And it's been given to you. And there's a way of giving back to God that's just like Ananias and Sapphira. It's like licking off a donut and eating half of it. Say, so here you go, God. Have what's left over. And that's what's happening here. And it's a, there's this deadly combination of ingredients in Ananias and Sapphira's life here that we'll see. Now before we get to that, I want us to make no mistake. I believe this was an intentional, coordinated deception on their part. When you read the passage of Scripture, you kind of feel like, man, this is harsh. You kind of, kind of feel like, well, they only gave half. I mean, they sold the land. They gave half of it. Isn't that good enough? It's not just that God struck them down because they gave half of the... Half of, it's because there was some deception here. They were trying to deceive. Um, we can know that from the word that's used in this passage. In, in your English translation, at least in the ESV, it says they, they kept back. In verse 2 and in verse 3, it's translated as keep back. Uh, it, the word itself is only used one other time. It's used in Titus 2 verse 10. And it refers to a slave defrauding his owner. Holding back money from his owner, stealing from his owner. Uh, the word itself can be translated to pilfer, to defraud, to embezzle. So really, verse 2 could be translated, and with his wife's knowledge, he embezzled for himself some of the proceeds. Or verse 3, when Peter's talking to him, he says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to embezzle for yourself part of the proceeds? Ours is translated, keep back. But that's not harsh enough, really. Because really what the word means is you're taking it, stealing it, embezzling it away from who it's supposed to go to. It, 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 it implies that there's deceit involved in the action here. So it wasn't that they just sold their land and God got mad because he, they only gave him half. It's more than that. As a matter of fact, it's really telling that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. But it was translated into the Greek, and many of the New Testament people that quote the Scripture, they're quoting the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. In the Septuagint, the Greek copy of the Old Testament, in the story of Achan. You remember the story of Achan in Joshua chapter 7? Um, Joshua 7, verses 1 through, I think, 26 or something like that. There's a story uh, where the Israelites cross the Jordan, and they're going to conquer their first uh, target. They're conquering Jericho. We all know the wonderful story of Jericho, right? They walked around the walls and the little green peas on the stop were throwing slushies over the... Wait, no, wait a second. No, that's, that's veggie tales. No, you remember the story, okay? The walls came tumbling down, but God, before they went into Jericho, had given them very strict instructions. He said, first of all, everything living was to be killed, but all the plunder, all the gold, all the money, all that was to be dedicated to him. They couldn't take it. It was to be captured, gathered up, and dedicated to the Lord. It belonged to him alone. And the story goes, though, that they go in there, they conquer Jericho, they look at the next city, this little city called Ai, and they say, wow, that's going to be an easy target. And so Joshua only sends a few soldiers to go conquer that city. They fail. They get routed. And they're wondering, what happened? 
and Joshua falls on his knees and God reveals that someone in the camp, one of the Israelites, had kept back some of the gold. It's the same word that's used, the exact same word. And it was a guy by the name of Achan. He had kept back some of the plunder for himself and hid it in his tent. So when Luke uses the same verb here that he uses, that it's used in uh, Joshua chapter 7, he's drawing a comparison because it's not a very commonly used verb. Luke's thinking about what, what can I use here to try to describe what these people are doing. And so he goes, ah, it's what Achan did. That money, there's a parallel there. That money didn't belong to the Israelites. It was God's. The money you have doesn't belong to you. It's God's. And there's a parallel there. Achan decided to keep it back for himself, and so did these guys. There's other parallels. Not in, in, in the story of Achan, his whole family suffered. His whole family and himself died as a result of that sin. And in this story, Ananias isn't the only one that's hurt. His whole family suffers as a result. And in that story, in Achan, God's punishment was severe. And of course, we just read in this story, God's punishment is severe. And the other parallel I want us to see is the whole community suffers. You know, Luke could have left this out. He's telling people about the church, about the origins of the church. Remember, he's writing to his friend, Theophilus. He could have just left this out. Oh, this isn't a very pretty thing that happened in the church. But he doesn't leave it out. Because he wants people to see God's seriousness and he wants people to see what happens when sin comes into the church and how it can affect the whole community. Remember, the generosity is the evidence of the unity. If the generosity gets corrupted, the unity gets corrupted. If the generosity becomes something that's fake, then the unity is fake. And so this is very serious. It's very serious here. And so the whole community is affected by one person's sin, just like the whole community of Israel was affected by Achan's sin. So I want us to look at this, uh, the phrase I was trying to think of earlier that I couldn't, couldn't pop out of my mind, it, wasn't, uh, it was recipe for disaster. There, that, that's, the, that's the phrase that we hear a lot. That's, that's a recipe for disaster. Why did I say ingredients for something? I don't know. I'm off today. Um, so you'll hear people say, well, this is a recipe for disaster. We see a recipe for disaster in Ananias and Sapphira, and we see a deadly combination of ingredients. And the first thing we see, well, is self-exaltation, self exaltation now they bring this gift i think the passage makes it pretty clear that they bring it to get some attention i don't know why maybe they saw other people bringing large gifts and they saw other people getting some attention i think it's interesting that barnabas is mentioned right before them maybe they saw barnabas get the attention and barnabas got a nickname all right uh, his, his name was really Joseph, and he's given the nickname of Barnabas, son of encouragement. And, and so maybe they're thinking, hey, we want a nickname, you know, Ananias and Sapphira, the couple of generosity or something. You know, they're, they're thinking, attention is what they're wanting. They're wanting self-exaltation. And so they come and they appear to be holy. They appear to be spiritual. They appear to be good. And you know what? The church is still filled with that today. The church is still filled with that today where people come and put on a show. They want to look spiritual and so they'll even do things. I'll volunteer to do this or I'll give this much or whatever because they want, to, want everyone else to know how spiritual they really are. Uh, I was told a story once when I was in seminary by a professor and I can't remember if this happened to him or he knew somebody but they were at a he was at a church and the pastor, uh, a new family joined the church and this person that joined was very wealthy. Matter of fact, met with the pastor before he joined and, and made sure the pastor knew that he was very wealthy. And they joined the church, and then shortly after joining, he wanted to meet with the pastor and then the pastor's office, and he pulls out his checkbook and writes this check. It had a lot of zeros after it, hands it to the pastor and says, you know, I just want you to know that I'm doing this for the Lord. And he hands over this big old check. Now, that's the first clue. If someone has to hand you over a check, can't just put it in the offering plate like everybody else or put it in the you know, those little envelopes are there for a reason. Put it in a little envelope and put it with everybody else, and they got to come and show off. Then that's, that's, there's an issue. So he goes and he gives this to the pastor. Pastor, well, thank you very much. Pastor takes it. Guy leaves his office. And then several months later, some sort of issue arose in the church. I, have, I cannot remember what it was, but some sort of dispute in the church. And this man was on the opposite side of the side the pastor was trying to lead the church. The pastor wanted the church to do this. 
This guy said no, and he kind of gathered up some people behind him, and he had another meeting with the pastor in his office. He said, I want to remind you of that check I wrote for the church. And the pastor said, well, you don't have to remind me. I have it right here. Opened his desk drawer, pulled it out, ripped it into 100 pieces, and threw it down and says, I don't want your money. You know, there's lots of people in the church like that today. That maybe, not, maybe people don't have the resources to write checks with lots of zeros. But self-exaltation appears in all sorts of ways. We want people to see how much we've served. We want people to see how, how generous we are. And so we have to be careful to watch our motives. You remember what Jesus himself said in Matthew 6, verses 1 through 4. He said, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand's doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. But oh, how easy it is to fall into the trap, individually and as families, we must examine our motives and all we do to make sure they're pure. So the first of the deadly combination of ingredients is self-exaltation. Second thing simply is the love of money. It's the love of money. It's obvious from the text here, these two love money. They like their money. Um, one of the funniest renditions of this passage I, I've ever seen was for a youth group in a skit. And, you know, Ananias, he comes in, has his confrontation with Peter, doesn't last long. He's taken out by the, by the young men, it says, by the way. That's the only mention of youth ministry in the scripture. They carry out the dead. So um, the young men carried the body out and, and buried it. Um, that's just a side note. Anyway, but then Sapphira comes back three hours later. Now, what was she doing then? Anyway, this skit I saw, Sapphira comes back and she's got all these shopping bags and she's got these sunglasses on. She was out shopping for three hours. Now, probably she wasn't out shopping for three hours. But I think the point is, the text makes it pretty clear. These two were enamored with money. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. 1 Timothy 6.10. Notice the phrase in verse 3. It says, Satan filled your heart. Peter tells them that Satan filled your heart. I do not believe this means they were possessed by Satan. But what I do believe it means is that Satan has influenced them and filled them with his value system. Pride, desire for riches, lies. Satan is the father of lies. And he has filled them with his value system. You remember a similar phrase was used of Judas Iscariot in John chapter 13 verse 2. It says the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And what did he betray him for? Money. You see, I think that... The door that Satan uses more than anything else to get influence in people's hearts, including Christians, is money. I believe the door that Satan uses to get influence, to get into your heart, to fill your heart, is money more than anything else. And we see it over and over and over again in the scriptures. But not only that, we see it over and over and over again in modern day life, in the church. I mean, how many scandals do there have to be of of, of pastors falling from grace and always has to do something usually with, with money. And we see that this money is the door. I mean, you remember the, the back in the 80s, the bakers and the whole PTL, all that stuff. I can't even remember all the details, but it was all about money. And Satan had put into their heart a desire for riches. And so that's what Satan has done here. He's gotten a hold of their heart. He's filled their heart with his value system. When our heart is filled with the love of money, it's devoid of the love of God. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and money. It's funny, I was reading a, um, uh, uh, actually I was listening to a radio station yesterday, and I found this uh, uh, news story. Let's see if I can find it here, because I wrote it down. Um, and, and I got to thinking about how this is kind of the way we, we approach uh, our money sometimes. But this was a story from out of Los Angeles. The, the superintendent of the Los Angeles public school system decided they're, they're, they're having a $60 million budget shortfall. And so they've decided to have a, a, 
hiring freeze. And this is the word for word what the article said. And this, no, this was the superintendent's word. He said, the only exception to the hiring freeze will be for classroom teachers, principals, assistant principals, cafeteria managers, school police officers, bus drivers, uh, bus driver's assistants, teacher's assistants, education aides, special education assistants, and plant managers. Some freeze, all right? I mean, that's the kind of the way we are. God, it's all yours. It's all yours. Except for my cable TV, my internet access, my 401k, oh, my weekend hobby. And this and that and that. But other than that, other than that, it's all yours. Other than all these positions, we're, on, we're having a hiring freeze. Other than, like, everybody's job. Other than that, it's a freeze. And that's the way we are with our money. We, we, we live these lives walking the dangerous path that Ananias and Sapphira walked, where we love to serve God, but there's this other little God over here, this idol called money. It's always tickling our ears, always trying to get access to our heart. And it's so easy to start serving that God instead of the one true God. Uh, Randy Alcorn said um, this. I love this. this. He was talking about uh, our money. He says, suppose you have an important package sent to someone who needs it. Uh, You take it to an overnight delivery service. What would you think if instead of delivering the package, the driver took it home? Then when you confront him, he says, if you didn't want me to keep it, why'd you give it to me in the first place? And you say, the package doesn't belong to you. Your job is to deliver it to the person who needs it. That's the way we should view our money. It's been given to us. It's been entrusted to us. And we're like the delivery man. Our question should be, okay, God, who needs it? Why have you entrusted me with so much? And let's face it, we're all rich in this room because we live in America. Why have you entrusted us with so much? Where's our delivery? It's not for us to take and to spend it on ourselves. It's not. It's for us to serve others, just like the video we showed earlier. But adding to those two deadly ingredients, we also have the ingredient of duplicity. The love of money was bad enough. Uh, Had they just loved their money... Had they just loved their money, they could have just gone on. They could have just sold the land and kept the money and spent it on themselves. But there was something else going on in their heart. They were duplicitous. They were trying to deceive. Um, it's more than just hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy mixed with deceit. Here they are in this body of believers, which is exhibiting tremendous unity and uh, exhibiting a heart for meeting the needs of others. And that was the only reason that Barnabas and others were selling their land was to meet the needs of others. And here they come along and they're selling their land. Not to meet the needs of others, they're selling their land for their own needs, for their own end. By selling their land, they were saying, yes, we love people and we want to meet needs. Yet in secret, in their heart, they were trying to make something off of this venture. They were double-minded, duplicitous, at best, fake, at worst. James says, says it this way, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You, do not, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace therefore it says god opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble submit yourselves therefore to god resist the devil and he'll flee from you draw near to god and he will draw near to you cleanse your hands you sinners purify your hearts you double-minded double-minded be wretched and mourn and weep let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom humble yourselves before the lord and he will exalt you james is writing to the church He's not writing to a bunch of unbelievers outside the church. He's writing to the church. These are problems in the church. Is that people are double-minded. When God wants us to be single-minded, we've got to decide what camp we're in. Are we in God's camp? Are we in the world's camp? Are we in God's camp? Are we in our camp? Are we all in? Are we all out? There's no middle ground. Remember what we preached a few weeks back? Jesus does not like lukewarm water. He spits it out. Are we going to be hot? Are we going to be cold? These two wanted the benefit of giving to God and the benefit of making a buck. 
They wanted the benefit of honoring God and the benefit of receiving the honor of men. They wanted the benefit of sacrifice and the benefit of comfort. And we've got to decide which one we're going to go after. Trying to have the best of God's world and God's ways while keeping the best of this world. And this world's ways is a very, very dangerous place to be. Let me say that again. Trying to have the best of God's world and God's ways while trying to keep or keep back or hold on to the best of this world and this world's ways is a very dangerous place to be. It's a very dangerous rope to walk. But all these ingredients pale compared to the last one. And the last one is they mocked God. There's self-exaltation, there's the love of money, there's duplicity, and there's the mocking of God that we see in this passage here. How? Well, by lying to the Holy Spirit. By the way, this passage is good proof that the Holy Spirit is God. It's good proof for the Trinity. Because in verse 3, uh, Peter talks about them lying to the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 9, he talks about them lying to God, drawing that parallel. God is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is God. So anyway, first of all, they lied to the Holy Spirit. I don't know what they were thinking. They were dishonoring God simply by just trying to fool him, trying to fake him out. What did they think? Is their image of God, their view of God so tiny that they don't understand that he knows their very thoughts before they even think them? But instead, they're, going to try to, they're lying to God. They think they're just lying to the church, but they're also trying to lie to God. You know what? Anybody in this room can fool me. I'm, pretty, I'm, I'm a sucker. I'll tell you that. I can be fooled pretty easy. And, and you can fool me. And you can fool other people in this room. But you can never fool God. And you can come here and you can fake it. And you can make it look real good. But you can't fool God. God sees to the heart. And so they lie to the Holy Spirit. And they test God. Verse 3 says they're lying to the Holy Spirit. In verse 9, he says, you're testing God. So they test God. They put him to the test. God, are you really going to care? How, much, how many of us do that? How many of us hold back from God? We don't give what we're supposed to give. We don't serve the way we're supposed to serve. We don't honor him the way we're supposed to honor him. We don't give him the time he wants from us. Instead, we do everything we want to do because we want to have some of this world. We like the way it tastes. And we just put God to the test. God, you really don't want me to do that. You really don't expect that from me. I know, God, that the Bible speaks of 10%, but surely 2% will do. And we put God to the test. And the Bible warns against that severely. And not only that, they didn't grasp the person and the power of God. I mean, like I said, what were they thinking? They don't, obviously, they don't understand how big this God is they serve. They don't understand how powerful this God is that they serve. They have belittled his person and his power by trying to sneak this thing in. They've belittled God. And finally, they damaged the testimony of the church. By undermining the generosity and undermining the unity of the church, they damaged the testimony of the church. And in doing those things, they have mocked God. What a deadly combination of ingredients. What a recipe for disaster. And this can be us. If we're not careful. The Bible says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who spurns the Son of God? Who has profaned the blood of the covenant which, by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's Hebrews 10, 29 31. Let me say that last phrase again. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing to try to mock God. And I'm afraid that some of us, all of us, at times, do it simply by the way we live our lives. But what about God's reaction here? Do you struggle with it? I mean, okay, if God is going to be consistent with this type of judgment upon this type of sin, wouldn't we be having our young people carrying out dead bodies every Sunday? Because when I read Ananias and Sapphira, it scares me because I'm thinking, wait a second. There's been plenty of times in my life where I've kept back from God, either monetarily 
or with my talents or with my time and I've kept back from God and I haven't served him the way I'm supposed to. There's been plenty of times when I've loved money a whole lot more than I've loved God and I've charged up credit cards and made a fool of myself and become a slave to a creditor. There's been plenty of times when I've acted duplicitous and because I haven't felt like being at church that day, but I'm going to put on the smile and I'm going to sing the songs and I'm going to raise my hands so that when people look at me, they don't think, well, he's not worshiping and he's the pastor. Why should I? There's been plenty of times when I've mocked God with my behavior. How come I'm not dead? If it doesn't scare you, then you need to do some soul searching at this point of the sermon. But it scares me. To read this passage and say, wow. So why did God do this? Where's the grace? I mean, where's the, where's the mercy? Well, I want us to give, look at a few reasons why God has done this. First of all, I think he wanted to establish a healthy dose of fear inside the church. I believe this is not normative, or else we would see dead people every Sunday. I believe instead of setting up a pattern, God's using this as an example. But he wants the church to realize then, and he wants the church to realize today. That's why Luke put it in here. He could have just left it out. He wants the church to realize then and today that he is serious and he is a fearful God. He's a God to be feared. He's a God to be honored. He's not to be played around with. And so he wanted to establish a healthy amount of fear in the church. And that we need to have, fear is good. If you don't fear things, there, there's, there's good fear and there's irrational fear. Okay, it's good to fear uh, sharp objects. I want my kids to fear sharp objects so they won't get hurt. That, that's a rational fear. There's an irrational fear when you fear the sharp object and it's a little needle that needs to go in your arm to give you a shot. And you're a grown man and you begin to cry. That's an irrational fear. But this fear here, it's a necessary fear. We need to fear God. He is serious. He is Worthy to be worshipped on. We don't deserve to be breathing right now. We don't deserve it at all. Yet his mercy and his grace allows us to be here. Do we realize how blessed we are? We need to fear God. I think that's Luke's point here. He says it twice. Verse 5 and verse 11. He says, and great fear came upon all who heard it. Verse 11. Great fear came upon the whole church. It's mentioned twice for a reason. When you read a passage of scripture and you see things repeated, that's a clue. There's a point the author is trying to make and Luke here is trying to point out that this God himself is to be feared. He is our Abba Father, God, but he's also sovereign, all-powerful, mighty, just. He's a consuming fire. He's not an old grandpa in the sky. He's not your best bud. He's not a cuddly pet. He is the God, and he will make himself known however he so desires. He is not to be mocked. He does not ask for 50%. He does not ask for 60%. He does not ask for 90%. He asks for 100% of who you are and everything you have. And if that means that in giving it all up to God and he puts it upon your heart to give away everything you have to the poor, then do it. If it means to hold on to that and he continues to use it in your life in different ways to minister to people, do it. The point is what's right here. You can give away everything you have and not give away any of your heart because you're simply trying to show off. God wants 100% of who you are. Notice the irony of verse 10. When Sapphira dies, where does she fall? She falls where? At his feet. Where were they supposed to bring the offering? Okay, we've read in this passage, they brought it to the apostles' feet. That was symbolic of turning it over to God and God's appointed representatives. We're turning this over to you, God. I no longer am saying how this needs to be spent. I'm bringing it all to you. It's yours, God, to use however you so wish. I'm laying it at the apostles' feet. I think it's ironic. Luke uses the exact same phrase to say she fell at, the, at his feet. You see, God doesn't just want our money. He wants us. He wants us. We need to fear God in a new way today. I'm afraid the church today, we just don't fear God. I mean, the way we worship sometimes, we, just don't, we don't fear God. Next thing I want to see, well, <laughs> is that he wants to establish a healthy dose of fear outside the church as well. Verse 11, second half of verse 11 says that fear also came upon all who heard of these things. So those outside the church hear about this too and they're freaking out a bit. And then in verse 13 it says, none of the rest dared join them but the people held them in high esteem. So there's a healthy dose of fear now that has been established outside the church as well. 
You see, people looking on need to see that our God is powerful. He's an all-consuming God. We need to portray to them a God who is awesome. We need to portray to them a God who's not just our homeboy, but he's our Alpha and Omega. Wear the Jesus is my homeboy shirt, but you know what? Live your life like he is your all in all. Not just your best pal that helps you. He's not your Oprah in your pocket for when you're having a hard time and you need someone to talk to. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's holding the atoms of your body together as we speak. And any minute he can say, it's over, and it's over. That's who we serve. And the world needs to see that. The world needs to hear that. And if it causes fear outside the walls of the church, so be it. It should. Because people need to know what they're coming to. People need to count the cost. The church isn't just a place to belong and to be friends. I don't mind those type of phrases for your mission statement for your church, but it goes way beyond that. You're here to serve and to give yourself up to an awesome and powerful God. And so come, church, come, people, hear about this God. But this isn't going to be just a self-help session in here. We're going to preach about the power of God, and it may not be popular. It isn't today to be popular, but you know what? God is a God to be feared. And he's a God who disciplines his children. I think that's the third reason that God did this. I don't believe Ananias and Sapphira were lost. I believe they were saved. I think that's why they died. I think God took them out. I think they were believers and they were saved. Otherwise, I think he just, sinners are going to commit. If you're not saved, if you're lost, you're going to do what lost people do. Lost people don't take their money and say, hey, let's give it to the needy. Lost people are going to act like lost people. And so, they, I believe, in this passage, because they were part of the believers, they're part of that group, they're part of that unity of body, they begin to stray from the faith. And I think that's why God takes them out. I think there's evidence of that in Scripture. Uh, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty through 32. This is Paul speaking about how you take the Lord's Supper. And this is what he says. He's talking about how the people in Corinth have taken it in a disrespectful way. They've, they've turned it into a gluttonous, drunken event. And so Paul says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Paul's saying, the very sin that you're committing in taking the Lord's Supper is the reason some of you have died. Because God can judge. Is that judgment? Yes, it is. Because he goes on to say, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. God will take his children out so that they don't fall away from the faith. He'll do it. So they don't have to fall under the judgment of the world. Now those who do fall away from the faith, who commit apostasy, he's preventing them from committing apostasy here. Those who do apostatize and leave were never saved in the first place. But those who truly are believers, God will take care of them. And he will not let them apostatize, and so he takes them out. We see it also in John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. It says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. This is a kind of confusing passage, but what John's saying is there is certain sin that leads to God saying, you're done. That should make us fear. That's what's happening here with Ananias and Sapphira. Is that God is finishing their journey on this earth. Now the fourth reason, maybe the hardest one for us to see, is why did God do this? He did this to show grace to the church. I want us to see six ways God shows grace to the church by killing two of its members in the church building when they brought their offering. Okay? You tell people that that's gracious? No, that doesn't sound gracious. It is. How? Well, first of all, it's grace to the church to preserve the unity. This is a gracious act of God. Remember, if this generosity gets corrupted, the unity gets corrupted. And God says, I'm going to take care of that right now. He's pouring out his grace upon the church to continue to keep them and to be a unified body of believers. It's also grace to the church in purification. Think about it. Some people say, well, if 
If we preach this type of God, who's a God to be feared, that'll kill evangelism. No, no, no. We've got to have friendly God. Friendly God. That's, that's the only thing we can preach. God is friendly. So we want, we want just friendly God. We'll leave off judgment God. Put judgment God in the closet so that we can get the visitors in. Because it'll kill evangelism if you preach fear God. God to be feared. Well, if you look at this passage in verse 14, right after it says that there were people who didn't dare go and join them, Verse 14 says, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. And so, what does that mean? If it says in one verse that they didn't dare join them, but then the next verse it says believers were added, the way I look at that is people saw this, and now the people that are going to come be part of the church are no longer those who are just going to test it out and see what it's like. These people realize this is a God to be honored, to be feared. And you know what? Those who do commit their life to him, those who do come in, those who do believe, according to verse 14, are those who really believe. Okay? If you're going to join a church after two of its members just died in the middle of a church service, you got some guts. And that's what these people have. They're going to join this church because they really believe in this God. This is a God to be feared, and I want him to have all of me. I'm going to be part of that church. It's not, well, I'm going to go test it out. I'm going to see. I wonder what their music's like. No. I'm going to go be part of this community of believers that love this God. And man, he's an all-consuming God. And I want him to have all of me. And so it purified the church as well. It purified the evangelism. It's a gracious thing. As I already mentioned, I think this was an act of grace to Ananias and Sapphira for taking them out before they apostatize. Uh, It's an act of grace for allowing people to see his character more fully. This is a gracious passage. For allowing us to see more of God's character. Wow. This God is a consuming God. And so that's anytime you get to see more of God, that's grace. So it's a gracious thing that the people get to see more of God's character. It's grace because God uses this to continue to supernaturally confirm the gospel. In the rest of this passage here, it talks about miracles that continue to happen. And by the way, just so you know. In the passage there, it says that they laid the sick out so that Peter's shadow would hit them. Look closely at the passage. It never says Peter's shadow healed them. It just says they put him out so that Peter's shadow would actually cross over the people. But it doesn't say that the crossing over of the shadow did anything to them. Just in case you're wondering about what that strange passage is. It was a superstitious act by the people. It doesn't say the shadow healed anything. Anyway, but look at the story of Acts so far. What was the first supernatural event? It was Pentecost, speaking in tongues. And that day, 3,000 were added to the church. So God used miracles to confirm the gospel. People received Christ, joined the church. Next miracle, Peter and John heal the lame man. They go into the temple, begin to preach. That miracle confirms the gospel, and 2,000 people are saved. Now this is the third one. Third thing that happens, we like the nice signs and wonders where people get healed and, and, and people speaking crazy languages, we like, that's cool. Third sign and wonder is that someone, a couple, falls to their death at the floor of the church. And what do we see in verse 14? More people than ever have, are joining the church. You see, God's grace, God's continuing to pour out miracles and wonders, in this case, a scary wonder upon the church, to confirm the gospel so that people will continue to come and receive his saving message and finally it's grace to grow the church in verse 14 as we've already seen god continues to grow the church so when you look at this passage don't just freak out don't just freak out and say oh my goodness but do take it serious and see god's grace in this and see god's grace in this for us today he wants us to take acts chapter 5 verses 1 through 16 very seriously and not just blow it off ah that was way back then Understand the same God, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, forever. The same God who put out Ananias and Sapphira is the same God who's here with us right now. And God wants us to take our worship and our service to him seriously. So I want us to think about that as we go about our week, as we go about this Christmas season. God hates impurity, God hates deceit, God hates duplicity, God loves his bride. He loves this church. He loves us. And he wants us to be faithful to him.
Okay, the Bible compares our unfaithfulness, whether it's with our money or with our time or whatever. He compares that to adultery. Adultery. And so, as we go about this Christmas season where the harlot of materialism is at its loudest and it's beckoning all of us, come, come. Come into my presence. Please, please, please. Let Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, take your heart and shake it into a fearful fright so that you say, no, no. I've had enough of this consumerism. I've had enough of this. Instead, I'm going to ask God, what do you want from me this Christmas? How do you want me to serve you? How do you want me to sacrifice so that you can be the God in my heart that you need to be? Let's pray right now. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Let's pray. I'm going to ask Mark to get ready to lead us in our last couple of songs. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed up here in the offering basket and up here in the prayer basket, you can drop off your prayers and your offerings during our response time. But um, this time is for everybody to respond, myself included, to what God wants us to do. So right now, I want you to be praying and asking God to do a work in your heart to expose any of those ingredients that we talked about today and ask Him for the grace to deal with them. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you be with us. God, forgive us. Forgive us for coming at you sometimes glibly and just kind of in, in a sort of way that doesn't honor you for who you are. God, I want this church to be seeker-sensitive to the degree that we are a church where people can come in and feel welcome and feel warm and, and, and then connect with you. But God, oh God, please prevent us from ever being a church that will skip over Acts chapter 5 verses 1 through 11 type passages so that we don't offend people. Because if we do that, Lord, then we've begun to dishonor you in a way that, oh God, I don't even want to think about. So God, we pray right now that you'd work in our hearts Forgive us all of our sin. God, help us this Christmas season. It's so easy. Uh, it's so tempting to just go after the stuff. Help us, God, to serve, to give, to love, to sacrifice, to be willing to experience a little bit of pain in our pocketbook, not because we put everything on the credit card, but because we've laid it all at your feet. So, God, we ask this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.